0: We got an episode called The Mathematician's Ghosts, and, and Hologram Harry didn't show up. Welcome to
1: Season 2 of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Foundation, Isaac Asimov's classic science fiction series. Both the books and the TV series currently streaming on Apple TV+. In season one, we read through the three books of Asimov's original Foundation series with an enthusiastic but critical eye. Now we've turned that eye to our screens to watch and discuss the show. I'm John, and I'll be one of the voices guiding you through this story of the fall and rise of galactic empires. I'm Dan. We're Foundation fans who love the novels
2: but aren't aren't afraid to critique them. We're hoping to love Apple's new series, and aren't afraid that it's an adaptation that changes some things, but if we see something that rubs us the wrong way,
0: we'll let you know. My name is Joseph. You joined us on our nostalgic journey through this 80-year-old classic. Now join us on a new adventure as we see whether galactic civilization and this new interpretation of Asimov's story will evolve or die.
1: This week, we get episode three of the Foundation TV series, The Mathematician's Ghost. But first, let's take a quick look back at episodes one and two and, and uh, give a few extra thoughts to those things that maybe came up in, uh, in reflection upon further review. Uh, Joseph, you had, a, uh, had some thoughts about, about the death of Harry Seldon shockingly saw at the end of episode two yeah because
0: when i was um when i was going back and thinking about it and actually going back over the the (laughs) going back over the episode and trying to figure out what the hell was going on it struck me that i think a a key moment there is when gail is talking about how harry's math isn't complete harry's math has holes in it ultimately i don't think that's the case i think i think actually it's the fact that you know, Harry is presupposing that there's not going to be any psychohistorians on the, um, on the foundation, because we know from the books that that will um, ruin any predictions that are, are made if, if the, the people who are being ob- observed you know, have too, too much of an idea what's going on. And so the fact that he's there, which is, uh, John, as you just pointed out, that he wasn't expecting, and the fact that Gail's there is actually a problem and is probably you know, throwing off the math. the foundation is going to work i think they have to get them off the ship i think that's that's where the plot to murder harry comes from i mean and it it explains so much it explains the wandering around wistfully where harry wants his favorite shirt even if it still has a stain in it and then you know giving that awkward speech of thanks to the the folks who did the laundry you know i mean it it explains being a little bit more gregarious than usual at the you know at the table it explains race weird change in behavior you know he and he and gail are sitting looking at that's that um that sunset and he's he's crying and he's not answering questions you know he's not responding to things like uh, about them raising the kids that they're dead and planning to have
1: yeah also you know the small question of him murdering harry slightly right. out of character
0: oh yeah um, completely out of character really. yeah no
1: i'm so um, but but i mean that that's right and um i think it does also open up a question that uh you know that comes from the books which is as we know from the books there's not one foundation there are two foundations and the second foundation is the psychohistorians, the mental scientists who are the guardians of the plan actually if gail is right and the plan is somewhat incomplete that does open up the possibility of a second foundation that's there to bring the plan to fruition none of that of course is answered in episode three so we'll have to get to that in a minute you know what what happened to gail what happened to Rage? was it really harry's plan to be murdered we don't know we're speculating but you know your your uh, proposal certainly <laughs> does seem to cover all the bases
0: it uh, does and and i think yeah i think we get gail back naturally when we start hearing about, I mean they haven't hinted at it yet, but when we start hearing about the second foundation, I think that's when Gail reappears.
1: Yeah. I mean, for now we we have no idea. Dan, did you have anything of course not.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I'm <laughs> in favor of this theory. I I I'm kind of suspecting that Gail is gonna end up being the first first speaker of the second foundation.
1: There
2: you go. Um I mean it's it seems like you know she neither she nor Harry can be allowed to make it to terminus because they don't want anyone who knows psychohistory there. It wouldn't work. All this talk about like her her kind of assessing Harry's math and noting that it's incomplete, that goes, fits in very well with how what we know of how the second foundation works of expanding on the original equations. If she was going to be, I mean, from the beginning, she says that she's going to see Star's End, which... Mm-hmm probably means she's stuck back to Trantor.
0: and uh, oh. yeah,
2: <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert, everyone. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, it all, it kind of fits. Right. Um, so I, I, and, and otherwise, well, we'll get into this with episode three in a minute, but she's narrating everything that is happening on Terminus without being there. There has, I mean, how would she know this? It, it seems likely that she would know that from a perch at the Second Foundation. So I, I think we're going in that direction too. Uh, and so I, you know, kudos to Joseph for
1: seeing that. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that all sounds right. And, uh, and I'll go back to that lunch, by the way, with the uh, the little argument between Harry and Rach, which seemed very contrived. Yeah. And at the time when, when I saw Rach murdering Harry and I my mind immediately went to, this is part of the plan. I kind of felt like that was part of the plan too, to give people mm-hmm. some kind of a reason why Rach might have been angry at Harry. I mean, it's pretty paper thin and transparent, but maybe they did that just to, you know, to give Rach the ability to say, "Yeah, I was mad at him, and that's why I killed him," and not to tell everybody the the true story of why he had to kill Harry. I, I don't know. I,
0: yeah, yeah. I, actually, that, I, I, that that that's that's a good call because I just sort of assumed that Rache was out of sorts because he knew, you know, he was brought into the plan and he knew he was going to have to kill Harry and that, you know, bothered him, but actually making it part of the plan works really well too. Actually probably better.
1: All right. So let's, let's move on to the mysterious episode three, which, you know, before I even say anything about it, I'll just opine that in a, in a 10 episode season, they just chewed up an awful lot of time on some things that looked like they could have been dealt with a little quicker, particularly the first half of the episode, which was all about Brother Day, Brother, uh, Brother Dawn, Brother Day, and Brother Dusk, and the uh, Brother Dusk reaching the end of his life, and, uh, and dying and being replaced with a new Brother Dawn, we also got some backstory about Cleon the first, we saw a few Scenes from 400 years ago. Uh, there was Demerzel still there, uh, 400 years before, and and some of we got some of her relationship with the emperors. You know, we got some of the brother Dusk's continuing uncertainty about the future of the empire. So we see kind of his last day. We see him going through, getting gifts from his brothers, getting his special suit, having his last conversations and ultimately stepping into a light beam and getting vaporized. I thought it was actually interesting. We could talk about this in a minute. It it seems unlikely to me that this was just a throwaway that as brother, now called brother darkness, is walking towards the light to get vaporized, something happens with the baby brother, Dawn. Mm -hmm. And he turns around and says, something's wrong. And Demerizel very quickly says, no, no, nothing's wrong. And pretty literally pushes him into uh-huh. the execution chamber, <laughs> uh, but that's got to come back up again. There is something going on with that brother, that brother Dawn, uh, who we see in the, in that final coda. We see him erasing that last mural that Brother Dusk had made the night before he died, and said, "Oh, I outgrew that," and, and just erasing. Yeah, that, that we, hurt. Actually, that did <laughs> hurt. Didn't that? Didn't that? Yeah. It really. And then we switch to Terminus. Um, and we see the colony being founded. We see the colony being built. Most of the story is about Salver Harden. We do see Salver Harden's um, love interest, who is um, kind of a proto-trader, I thought. Um, he's, he's, he's going around the galaxy from port to port, buying and selling things. So I think that that's certainly foreshadowing the bigger role that the traders will have later on. And we see some of her backstory, and we some of her, see some of her relationship with the vault with the, uh, the null field around the vault, which, would now, you know, which is what keeps people away. And it now seems to be growing. And of course, we also know that the Salvor is the only, the only person that it doesn't seem to affect. I actually found this hilarious. She takes that rickety old telescope, looks up in the sky and sees Anacreonian ships arriving. Mm-hmm. I got to say, someone who's used to telescope, <laughs> trying to find anything in the sky like that uh, it, it's, it doesn't it doesn't happen you know the swivelly telescope like that but whatever okay fine. then she starts to see i guess what the place where she goes is the um the remnants of the slow ship right they used most of the <laughs> ship to build the colony but there's a piece of it that's left just as a wreck and she sees what looks like a, a child running in the wreck and she chases the child one night and she just sees this uh, what are those those creatures called bishop's, bishops. claw bishop's claws yeah she sees a bishop's claw and she uh, it, it runs away and after she shoots a, a shot into the air the second night it's been shot with an arrow and she turns and she sees these anacreonians who have arrived in their interstellar ships but they're using bows and arrows because presumably they've lost access to their to technology so they don't even have uh, guns anymore and they have a quick exchange but the anacreonians have uh have arrived on terminus and that's where uh, that's where things end. So I'll throw it open to you guys for for comments.
2: So we shall we start with the the first half and the, sure. yeah. yeah. So um, I mean I I was you know like you John I was I thought this was notable how much time we are expending on this uh, interlude that that doesn't really seem to advance the plot in any way that I can tell maybe there's a couple hints of things that are coming but it it's it's lovely television right it's i mean in as a self-contained episode it's very poignant you know it, it's within this weird setup of three clones of the same person kind of shuffling through through different phases of the rain you know it it gives an interesting look on what that would feel like to to be uh, an old man near death living in that in that kind of setup, and um, the the interaction between Brother Dusk and Demersal was warm and poignant. It almost felt like, you know, she's she's kind of an adult daughter saying goodbye to her father in some ways. But thinking about how much story this is going to have to get through, it felt weird to, to spend a half an episode on this. And and my only thought about why this would be the choice to make was, is that for some reason, we're going to later in the series, we're going to have the, the Cleons and their mental states continue to be a major issue in, in how the story plays out so that it's, it's just a Goyer or the writers felt it was just essential to really build up. Uh, the, the character right at this moment as a kind of a foundation for what's coming later.
0: Yeah. Well, actually I think one of the things uh, when I went back and watched this the second time, I, I thought that this first segment, a lot of it is about, we've been saying Demerzel, but I guess what do they say on the show? Demerzel. Demerzel.
1: Um, I think they call it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Demerzel. Because you didn't i mean she seemed like you know a chief of staff or something before this looks so much more like she's at the center of things i mean she ran the empire mm-hmm. while you know baby cleon the was growing up and she just you know seems to be the one that's engineering things she's the one that tells dusk well you better go to your fitting you know she's the one who you know carries him back to his um you know i mean this is also a you know a, 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 like she has a duty of care carries him back to his um his bed and on his final night after he falls asleep painting, you know, and there's, I think a lot of little hints that she's actually engineering things rather than just, you know, being a part of things. And particular as John, you pointed out that um, as now brother darkness, formerly brother Dusk realizes that there's something wrong with the baby. She's like, you're fine. You're fine. But her hand is on her, her hand is on his back and she is, is pushing him towards that light which you is, think- becomes very sinister becomes very sinister at that point
2: you know with you mentioning that joseph i'm wondering do you remember that little scene where uh brother dusk goes down to the the baby tanks mm-hmm. and she says you shouldn't be here do, do, do you think maybe she was introducing some kind of rogue gene into the oh. into the into the baby
0: maybe didn't some- didn't think about it I didn't no. think the song was that bad, but <laughs> <laughs> now, the song
1: I actually thought the song was significant. And, and I'm going to refer back to the books in which we know that Demerzel is a mind controlling robot, mm-hmm. spoiler alert. Um, although she does it, she tries not to do it that often. Um, she is able to manipulate people mentally. And I kind of had the thought that that lullaby might've had something to do with that That ability that she might have been doing something to set up the baby for future control, and that when darkness was having his difficulty, she sang the same lullaby to him. Mm. And so, it could be, I could be reading too much into it, but it does seem to me that taking the prequels into account, the role of Demerzel as a potentially mind controlling robot is pretty significant to the story. That character is pretty much responsible for Selden developing psycho history and also the much more prominent role that he has in the empire in the, in the prequels than he has either in the original series or on this TV show where, you know, if you go back and read the prequels, he is actually, he takes Demerzel's job when Demerzel decides to go off into the universe and, hmm. and do something else. And he's very prominent in the empire at that point. I mean, he's, he's runs the empire for quite some time there's no hint of that here in the tv show but again that's that's all sort of left open but one thing i do want to say even though i've been talking for a while the image that we get of the emperor of this three-person emperor it's very inward looking it's very insular there is no contact with anyone other than damer they talk about the empire like it's indistinguishable from themselves as you're saying, Dan, about the, the fact that their mental health is going to be important, they are not living a particularly mentally healthy life. It's very solipsistic. It, it's very much like only we exist and everything else is just outside of us. And that whole ritual and everything, it's all about, it's all inward looking. Yes.
2: Yeah. Their they're only contact with with anyone other than Demersol is, is the servants who are uniformly depicted as cowering in fear of their lives. Uh, as well, and, they should be. Yeah, Look what yeah, happened right. to that
1: guy who's restoring the painting. Yeah, right, 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 right.
2: So yeah, it's you're you're right. I
1: hadn't thought about
2: that, but it is quite the um the weird and isolating and unhealthy environment for them to be in. They need to get uh, out more. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do. They um a theme that I saw sort of saw running through this episode because of course this this whole episode is sort of backward looking. you know, when they were visiting the remnants of the Star bridge and they're um, talking about, well, actually, dusk is afraid that they're going to be forgetting Cleon the First's vision and you know and the, the starbridge is one of his great accomplishments. Anyway, so, you know, he's afraid of, of losing Cleon the first, you know, th- this, this big monument to him. And Dusk is saying, well, we're going to build a bigger monument to him just for you. And you think, based on the fall of the bridge, you think, well, what about those 100,000 people?
1: Million, 100
0: million, please. 100 million, you're right, 100 no. million, sorry. You're absolutely right. Shouldn't they, you know, shouldn't they build a monument? I mean, here we are you know, and I don't think this was, I don't, I don't think this was by accident. But, you know, this is 19 years after the Starbridge bombing. Here we are, you know, 20 years after 9-11. I think they're clearly trying to draw a parallel here. I'm wondering if we're, we're going into something that's going to be much more about, and actually, we probably will jump ahead in time, so we won't, maybe some subtle things about current politics, in particular, in particular, current politics turning its back on the, um, on the past, which there's, tons of, of, of evidence of that, you know, starting with Newt Gingrich and then, and and, then, you know, looking at, uh, looking at Mitch McConnell at the moment that makes the uh, wiping away of the mural at the end. Oh, I've grown out of that. Just, I think all that more striking.
1: Well, we've certainly gotten nothing but questions.
0: (laughs) Yes. Most of this stuff.
1: Um, and then, and then we switch to Terminus, and we get more questions on Terminus. I mean, they're interesting characters, Salver and her her parents, and Hugo mm-hmm. the trader. But really, they just they don't answer almost any of our questions. They leave us just with with more questions.
2: So I I think I should say what, one thing that I liked about this uh, episode. Uh, there there are many things I like. There's a couple of things I'm wondering about. Uh, but one thing I liked is that we're kind of back on track with the books, right? We, we clearly have the same first crisis that is brewing of, you know, the infant foundation being menaced by its more powerful neighbors, uh, in particular, at the present, which we get just at coming up, they, they're there at the end of the episode. It's kind of comforting to, re- to return to the books uh, after, by this point, you know, an episode and a half of being completely off script. And so, you know, I, it's reassuring to know that kind of the, the Asimovian psychohistory is still, the, whole, the plan is in place, right? It's moving forward in a way that it should. <laughs> um, so that's good. And I feel, I feel safe and reassured.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that Hugo, who is totally not Han Solo in any way, shape, manner, or form, <laughs> is going to take his ship and, uh, and, and do the Kessel run in under 12 parsecs, <laughs> and, uh, possibly communicate with other neighbors and, and, uh, and be somehow instrumental in that. Um, it is interesting that they brought the vault into that into the crisis. That that Salver yes. speculates that the reason why the vault is acting up is because it senses the crisis. I thought that the total helplessness of the uh, the the of of Louis Perrin and the the rest of the terminus people uh, was was pretty faithful to the book. I mean, they 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 just think, well, we'll just call the Empire and they'll they'll come yes. and. And bail us out of this. I mean, it's preposterous to think that that. I mean, even, even no matter what you might think of the empire, to think that that was going to happen was just preposterous. But you know, they had one communication satellite, which is <laughs> taken out in the first five seconds,
0: yep.
1: and uh, and they're cut off. So that that was that was pretty true to the to the book. And I agree with you, Dan. Actually, I I also feel like yeah, okay, we're back on we're back on track, even if they've changed some of the details. And as I said before, I thought that the Anacreonians flying over in interstellar ships, but using bows and arrows was kind of a nice touch. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds funny, but it, it kind yeah. of is.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they, they do like their wood. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, well, I, as I mentioned on Twitter, I'm very glad that they have ditched their their tree cosplay.
0: Yes. Um,
2: yeah. I Looking at the still from the next episode, it still looks like they're using a lacquered wood-based armor. Uh, if you just look at look at the the one still that's appearing as the the, the placeholder for you
1: know once you go there. with the trees you just you never yeah. you never give them up
2: yeah um, let me ask you guys a, a big question about the the most mysterious part of this which is that little boy running away into the hulk of the the deserted uh, spaceship that brought them there and this happens twice. And then each time Selver follows him in and instead of finding a boy, finds a bishop's claw. Finds
0: so, the same bishop's claw.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I'm I, assuming that this is not, the bishop's claw hasn't like transformed into a human and then, and then uh, run back. But it seems, I, I'm guessing like there's some kind of it's projecting a mental power or some for some for some reason you know the the function of this unknown boy is to lead salver to the bishop's claw what is going on and why
0: yeah I mean i actually thought about and then discarded the theory that maybe that the bishop's claw was the boy in some form or the boy was the bishop's claw in some form but I think you're right it's it's got to be it's got to be something else but um it strikes me when salvor is sighting the boy both times she sees him for the first time she's looking through her little scope and i feel like it's almost like they reused some footage i could be wrong about that i would have to go back and look but it it was a very 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 similar it's
2: very close it is very close
0: so, yeah, I mean, you um, the, the thought projection there. Maybe there's, there's some sort of attempt to communicate. I would like that. That would be very Star Trek-esque, mm-hmm. actually. I actually um, I
1: associated that with the vault.
0: Ah, okay. And
1: she's actually, when, you, when she sees the boy, she sees him running towards the vault. You see the vault in the background. Yeah. <clears> she says, what the hell's going on? And she runs. And then That's instead true. of getting to the vault, she gets to the wreck. And so, my impression was that the vault was communicating with her, no. trying to, and maybe that's the mathematician's ghost. As well, I,
2: I could that. say in favor of that theory, John, that, you know, remember when her mom was uh, up at the vault with her and she told her the story, you know, I saw you at four years old just standing underneath it. And then she said, I felt, I thought the vault was calling to me. Mm-hmm. So, m- maybe, maybe it, it, it is really calling to her. Maybe the boy is, is a different uh, a version of that.
1: Yeah, we do know that the origin of the vault from the books is that it was something that Harry Seldon used to communicate mm-hmm. to the foundation. Now, obviously, in a much more mundane kind of, here's a tape recording kind of way, <laughs> um, as opposed to some sort of mental connection. But mm-hmm. obviously, the vault has been developed as a character, much more so than in the books. You know, and, and, and Salver talks about the vault waking up, being involved with this crisis so so that's where all of that comes from. now does the bishop's claw have a relationship with that i don't know Uh, that maybe it was interesting that the first time she sees the bishop's claw she doesn't shoot it she just shoots up into the air and it runs away Mm -hmm. yeah and we've certainly been given the impression of these bishop's claws as being super deadly you know just Mm -hmm. will attack you and kill you and yet it doesn't attack her it just runs away and i was curious about that whether there was any significance to that
2: if there is any sentience to this bishop's claw where they're serving any other function rather than other than as a like a wild native animal that's a, a source of danger that that would be a major departure uh, mm-hmm. since asimov's books are entirely about humans and robots but <laughs> um uh wow. and 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 if, if we have a another non-human
1: intelligent species then you know who knows where that would be going
2: yeah. it's a wild card
1: and i am intrigued by the character of Salver Harden and what's what's going on there although it does seem quite a departure from the Salver Harden that we know from the books i mean in so many ways obviously Salverharden was a man and was the mayor of terminus and you know was famous for his folksy aphorisms a- aphorisms one of which you know the violence is the last refuge of the incompetent and in, yeah. in in this episode salver harden goes i want to go check out and see what our capacity for violence is uh, <laughs> yeah, almost a literal <laughs> repudiation
0: of salver <laughs> yeah. harden from the book uh, yeah, and, and I, aside- I felt
1: like that couldn't be coincidence
0: no and and, and aside from that what's the best we get um, different doesn't necessarily mean special which is just a bad aphorism <laughs>
1: Yes, I, I I was thinking about a title for this episode, and it may involve that one.
0: <laughs> it's fine by me. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're but right. Yeah, I mean, was a step down.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the um, you know one of the nice things about Salvor Hardin in the book is he is you know just extremely and obviously intelligent. Yeah, I don't I don't get that from this character. I mean, I get I get protector, I get, but I don't get brilliant.
1: Um. I don't know about brilliant but she certainly seems frustrated with the complacency of the of the encyclopedists which 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 does come you know straight from the books yes they, they just believe the empire is going to save them and he's like incredulous at that like are you people out of your minds
2: one major way i think in which um this salver leah harvey's Salver, is different from the one in the books is that she her motivation seems quite different, right? Salver Hardin in the books is an ambitious politician, uh, an ambitious and ruthless politician. He he, I mean, he starts out by basically staging a coup.
1: He does uh, uh,
2: right. Whereas this uh, Salver Harden is reluctant to be there. She clearly would like to be able to fly away with Hugo, but she feels an obligation. To her family, right, and that you know she can't leave them. She's she's there for them, um, and that's that's there's less. It's it's not a less interesting character motivation, but it's it's quite different. Uh, and I'm just kind of wondering whether she's going to develop in a different direction. Maybe she's going to change into more of the cigar-chomping politico <laughs> that we see in the book. <laughs> But uh, at least for now, at least for now, she seems um, she seems to be in a very different place than Salver Harden in the book, where we first see him.
1: Although Harden's motivation in the book was purely to save the Foundation, to save Terminus, and mm-hmm. and to allow it to exist uh, independently, and and most uh, I mean he was a loyalist to Terminus and the Foundation, mm-hmm. and Salver Harden in the TV show is taking on that same role of Of protector, Mm -hmm. so to that extent, it's it's not certainly not the same way, but it's Mm -hmm. the same idea. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, both the first half, which you know was all about the emperors and was interesting, you know, and was all about the stages of the emperors, and the second half here, which did finally move the story forward, but it, it did take a lot of time to get there. I'm still left with the idea that we only have seven more episodes of this season to go. I'm not sure how far along they can they can go. I mean, maybe they only go to the first, you know, the, the resolution of the first crisis with an I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they must be going to
1: take us in they
0: must be having, they must be planning a long game if they, they are serious about 80 episodes, five books. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we'd be lucky to get to the end of, uh, of the first foundation book at the rate we're going.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's going to need eighty episodes to get yeah. this thing. Uh, David Goyer is going to need eighty episodes to get the, to get this story out. it so just seems you know, as we've said from the beginning, he seems very optimistic. Uh, but I know, I, mean, I, hope, I hope so. I, look, I I like it, and I I want to. I'm still once again by my test. Am I? Do I want more? Am I? Mm-hmm. Am I looking forward to the next episode? The answer is absolutely yes. I I really want to see where they're going with this thing, and i I'm kind of want to see how much intersection there's going to be between the book and the and the tv show like where where are the two going to meet and then separate and then meet again because uh, it does seem like it's doing that a little bit yep. i was actually disappointed that we didn't get more lee pace in in this episode despite the fact that the story was the emperor's story it was mostly what's his name terrence Mann, who played yep. brother dusk who, who
0: was featured there Well, which is fine
1: was, but i i yours is who
0: also was playing brother day who was the right right
1: he yeah. was was they did credit a double for many so a lot of scenes i think in a lot of scenes they did kind of cut them both in but i think in a lot of scenes they used a double so that they could do it in in practical effects instead of having to having to recut the episode yeah but i i'm looking forward to seeing more lee pace i mean i think he's he's uh he's definitely been set up as the uh, antagonist to the foundation uh ultimately behind the anacreonians and i want i want more of him you know so let's let's go folks I fully expect to see more of Jared Harris. By the way, I can't believe that he was in it for two episodes and out.
0: Yeah, and I can't believe that we got a we got an episode called "The Mathematician's Ghost" and and hologram Harry didn't show up. Oh, I know
2: that, that was cheap. That because <laughs> I mean, look, you end episode two with him getting stabbed, right? And then you make us wait a whole week with seeing that you know that episode mm-hmm. title, "The Mathematician's Ghost." and i'm expecting a ghost right <laughs> or, or, or at least a at hologram least, at least a hologram or at least you know i don't care if it's louis perren in a harry mask and then some kid comes along they they tear the mask off and he says i would have gotten it away away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling kids <laughs> You know, I want a ghost. And the ghost was just metaphorical and oh, we I mean, always barely metaphorical at that. I mean, yeah. come on, come on, <laughs> like
1: Gail, don't, don't, don't wax poetic. So what's the title of next week's episode? Do we do we have that yet? I think oh, okay. it's I Barbarians
2: at the Gate. Oh,
1: come on. <laughs> 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 well. I mean, I think we might get some actual barbarians. We
2: right? we so. we are I'm sure we are gonna get barbarians.
1: We've already got barbarians. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. It'd be nice to saying.
2: see if we, we actually got a gate.
0: I don't think we'll have a <laughs> gate though. Maybe the gate is the field surrounding the vault.
1: Hmm. Well, no more of this metaphorical stuff. You know, Dan,
0: I think wants a gate. He wants yes. wants I, I, I demand
2: uh, truth in episode titles.
0: Yeah. Well. <laughs> We demand literally defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Okay, so actually, I wanted to ask Dan something if uh, if I can sure. jump in here, because you're our you're our, our big encyclopedist. Yes. What's your take on these conversations? That you know that we've seen two meetings now of the encyclopedias.
2: Yeah, and they don't seem to be talking about encyclopedias. They're talking about clocks. Yes. Um, So, yeah, so we get this debate uh, about whether, um, you know, a sundial or a water clock would be good to best to revert to after the collapse of civilization. And I guess the conclusion is we should go with sundials because you aren't guaranteed of water on any planet. This, This is our... Yeah, it is kind of weird. Like, this is, it, it, it sounds as if they're preparing, like, low-tech, ultra-low-tech colonization missions rather than an encyclopedia. Yep. I, 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 I assume that they're not creating an, an encyclopedia of objects. Well,
1: I thought they- it was bizarre that they had, like, a working model of a water clock and a working model of a sundial and as as gail and her mother are walking down the hall after the meeting she's like hoisting this sundial along with her i mean are they not going to have anything in the encyclopedia that they can't have a physical model of and carry it around with them
0: yeah i mean and it doesn't make any sense so they're like well where are the survivors going to be right and uh, you know so yeah, what if the survivors are on a planet with no water? They can't have a water clock. Well, what if the survivors? That's not are... their
1: biggest problem.
0: Right, right. <laughs> what what if the survivors are on a planet with 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 no with, with three suns or something?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, it's like yeah, it's just you know the idea is write the damn book so that people can figure out how to rebuild, and then you know you can send that over the internet or whatever seriously i mean it's, it's not like
1: the plans for a water clock just exactly in case they have some water but seriously if they don't have any water on their planet they're only going to last about four days they're not
0: gonna <laughs> gonna need to know what time it is yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah and um yeah i mean or, or you know when the empire falls does everybody go back to absolute barbarism or is it just you know they're they're just so remarkably unadvanced that they think digital watches are a pretty neat idea.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. This. Then, so. Yeah. This. This. The encyclopedias. They're. They're not. They're not putting their whole heart and soul into a, a solid depiction of the 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 true allure of encyclopedias, <laughs> uh, and and what role they could solve. So that's this all seems kind of, yeah, like a weird pastiche of ideas thrown around a writer's room i don't know i don't know what what this is about or hopefully it'll get dropped soon enough
0: (laughs) yeah the the one thing i found in the middle of the in the middle of the clock debate i don't know if you guys noticed this but they show lewis prime they like the the camera Mm -hmm. focuses on lewis and for some reason he looks so damn smug (laughs) and self-satisfied it's like okay, what the hell is that about? Because I don't think this conversation makes any sense. But then, you know, no reference to it.
1: I think it's just the actor. I think that's just his <laughs> resting face. I think he just his yeah. sort of resting, smug resting.
0: Face. Oh, it could be.
1: But it, it is bizarre. I, mean, I, I guess the, the, the idea that they're trying to get across is that we can't save all of technology and therefore we have to make some decisions about what we can and can't save. And they're doing it extraordinarily clumsily. And I don't know why
2: I, you know, the best I can think of is that this is, this is an attempt to convey the idea of preparing for technological regression in a way that's friendly to the visual medium. Right. Mm. Like it, it, like it, you know, you wouldn't want to film people having debates about Wikipedia entries (laughs) like that, that, that would kind of, Look lame on the screen, so maybe this is the best that they could come up with. Yeah, but that water clock idea—it's um, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Let's let's. I think I'm gonna consign this scene to uh the, you know, oblivion in my <laughs> my my memory of the the episode.
1: Yeah, I, I think I already had until you brought it back up.
0: <laughs> sure. Sorry.
1: Well, where where do we think they're going with all this? I mean, so so are they going to go to the standard solution from the book, which is you know the the obvious solution that wasn't obvious with Anacreon and its other neighbors? Are they going to go somewhere else completely? Is is the vault going to have some role in that? I I mean I I'm just
0: yeah, that's a good question because uh, you know I mean we're already at a spot that's so different. You know, we don't have, was it hot roderick? Was that the character's name?
1: Yeah, we're not getting yeah. that guy.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Coming in and you know, and parading around, you know, the the the, the Anachrononian Anachrononians.
1: <laughs> One thing that's consistent <laughs> is that you still can't pronounce that word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, we're
1: not gonna get Lord Elmer Fudd Darwin and his no, we're not pronunciations pro- either. Mm-hmm. No, because
0: they can't even call him on the phone. <laughs> <No>. Um <laughs> But, but anyway, I mean, so, I mean, the setting here is so different. And Acrion has taken such a punishment. I don't know that they could go to the, well, we're going to set the four kingdoms against each other. I don't know that, uh, I don't know that that could, that could work.
1: I thought it was actually kind of significant that significant. Hugo is described as being a Thespin. Yeah. yeah. So I think, Thespis.
2: I think we're going to, we, we don't have four kingdoms anymore. We have two kingdoms, which are, we, we got those set up in episode mm-hmm. one. And two, the uh, the rivalry between Anacreon and Thespis will kind of serve to stand in for it. I mean, I think the ultimately the solution is going to be basically the same as the one we got in the book because th- that rivalry has been set up so well and so clearly that um, it seems like that has to go somewhere and and an obvious place for it to go would be for Salver to, you know, go to Thespis and say, hey, you don't want to let Anacreon take control of us. Um, I I would not be surprised if this takes many episodes to play out, maybe the rest of season one. I don't think we're just going to get it resolved next episode. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before about predictions. Um, but it. I, I think that we do need some time for salver harden to get off of her violence kick <laughs> <laughs> like even if we ultimately don't end up with her saying literally violence is the last refuge of the incompetent you know we we need time for her to come up with a with a solution that doesn't involve uh, trying to oppose an Acreon with whatever farming implements they happen to have around the camp and then i'm hoping that maybe sometime next episode, we get some hint of what happened to Gale
1: and Rach yes. and what the hell that was all about. <laughs> yeah, I sure hope so. And, and and keep in mind that while we're having the solution between Anacreon and Thespis and Terminus, the Empire it continues to be a major player. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not pushed to the background the way they were in the books. They're Clearly, right in the foreground, taking up a lot of screen time. Well, here's to bringing back in the next episode, Jared Harris and and Lulu Bell and and Lee Pace. Bring more Lee Pace. I still haven't given up on Harry uh, doing some twisting, doing some martial arts, but I, I think the possibility is fading. Pretty strongly in the background.
0: Well, they're good at nonlinear sword storytelling, so you never sure. know.
1: Sure, they might do a, a flashback to That's young right. Harry getting married yeah, <laughs> kicking some ass yeah kicking some ass <laughs> all right well maybe on that note we should uh, we should dig in and 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 wait for the next episode I was disappointed that they didn't drop it early this week that they, they right. made us wait until Friday could I
2: just uh, offer a note of levity
1: please please I, I, yes I would
2: love yes.
0: a note of levity me too I've got nothing
2: you've got nothing
0: so far as <laughs> Far as levity
2: So my note of levity is is actually I'm gonna go right at the heart of the problem and I'm gonna take the supreme moment of pathos in this episode as a moment of levity instead. So this is when um, this is when uh, Demersal is uh, uh, ushering brother Dark to his end. And, you know, it is, if you're into it and you're, you're following along and it's very poignant, but it's also ridiculous in a way Like just the way she insistently keeps kind of tugging at him and pushing him along. And then I, I just honestly, when she started singing the lullaby to him, I knew that I was supposed to feel so sad and poignant, but I just, I couldn't help laughing at the thought of singing this lullaby to an old man as you're you're pushing him to his death (laughs) like I wish she had come out with words you know like like go to sleep old (laughs) emperor it's time to step into the atomizer (laughs) and you know I I kind of I I hope that we'll get a little bit of uh of actual singing from Demerzel in the future. You know, hopefully we'll see her pushing other things to their death. Yeah. She's like actually that.
1: become a little bit of a sinister character. Yeah. And uh <laughs> yeah. I, as I, I speculated last week, I mean her relationship with the the Asimovian three laws of robotics seems to be very tenuous. I think as I said in the text messages with with you guys, the, the zeroth law, which is the one that you know that says that she has to to defend and protect humanity, not harm humanity, is doing a lot of heavy lifting here because yep. she is responsible for, at the very least, I mean, she didn't stop the emperors from taking their revenge on Anacreon and Thespis, which presumably killed
0: hundreds of millions of people. Yes.
1: And then, yeah, she's pushing Brother Darkness. She's like, yeah, it's time. Let's go. Let's <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, and how many more things has she, in like that, she been has she been complicit in giving that she says, "Oh, you guys always end up here." Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, 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 I feel like we're not going to make sense of her without without just ditching the three laws. I don't. She also feel hasn't like those a new dress be. in
1: 400 years. Let's let's face it; she's still wearing the same, true. the same exact dress she was wearing 400 years ago.
0: I saw something on Twitter today about a lot of people saying that they are now standing with Demerzel. Standing then Urzel, um, if I understand that term correctly.
1: Standing her with who, though?
0: Uh, oh, um, not shipping her, but standing her. Oh,
1: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I,
0: <laughs> I too, I do trouble. not know the yeah. lingo. I have trouble with that one, too, sadly. <laughs>
1: um, to our
2: listeners, in case you haven't noticed, we are old guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We do not know the, the ways of this mysterious thing called the internet.
1: We are Brother Dusk, Brother Dusk, and Brother Dusk. <laughs>
0: uh, maybe, maybe I'm Brother Darkness. I don't know.
1: But I'm not cheerful, though. Maybe we should wrap this up and, and get back to anticipating the next episode. Sounds good. All right. Respect and enjoy
2: the peace, fellas. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast,
1: subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com where there's always additional content. Our music used by a Creative Commons license is It Is Coming by Alex Mason.
0: Also, follow us on Twitter at starsendpodcast. Bye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.